This is a CBC Podcast. Hey, I'm Claire Bonnyman. And I'm Min Dariwal. And welcome to The Loop. Kids were just hanging out waiting for the bus. And then all of a sudden, two police cars came flying up and ended up um, up over the curb onto the grass and the crowd just all of a sudden shot into like a million directions. Kids kind of flew everywhere. So Hoda was swarmed while waiting for the bus outside of McNally High School on April 8th. He died from a stab wound to the chest a week later. Our car was tragically taken from us due to the senseless acts of seven young adults. These adults murdered our 16-year-old baby cousin. We are now left with only memories of Karn that we chase from the moment we get up to the moment we go to sleep. In the last two weeks, you've likely heard the name Karn Sahota. The 16-year-old died after being assaulted at a bus stop outside McNally High School earlier this month. The school is holding a vigil tonight when this episode comes out, Friday, April 29th, to remember Sahota. But that process of healing a community is going to be going on for weeks, if not months and years, really. Absolutely. So this week on The Loop, we're digging into that. We'll be hearing from a teacher about what taking care of a school community after a tragedy looks like and how we can be better and how we can support the mental health of students after violence. But first, we'll hear what happened and what we know so far about the events outside of McNally. Julia Wong is a national reporter with CBC based out of our newsroom here in Edmonton, and she's been covering what happened at McNally on April 8th. Hi, Julia. Thanks for joining us. Hi, thanks for having me. So remind us, I mean, what happened outside McNally? So April 8th, police say there was an assault outside the high school, and there weren't many details on what exactly happened. But we do know that there was a uh, a teen, a a student from the high school, who was assaulted outside. Um, And then police said that this teen was taken to hospital in stable but critical condition. Mm -hmm. And we didn't hear much afterward, but it was about a week after that we learned that that teen ultimately passed away from his injuries. And later an autopsy found that this particular teen uh, died because of a stab to the chest. Yeah. We're now hearing and seeing charges coming forward. What does that look like in this case? So there's there's really a lot to unpack, especially yeah. something uh, of this nature, especially something involving uh, people of this particular age. So we know that in the days after the death of this particular teen, a 16-year-old Karnvir Sahota, police had said that they had identified some youth suspects. And then we were sort of left waiting a little bit. Yeah. Um, then the police chief came out and said that seven people had been charged with attempted murder. Of course, with this teen passing away, the situation changed. Um, They had to look again at those charges. Those charges were upgraded. So now we know that there are seven teens between the ages of 14 and 17 years old who have been charged with second degree murder. So um, lots of charges, lots of people involved in that. And I think it's the ages of those accused that are particularly startling for some folks. I mean, we're talking about 14, 15, 16, and 17 years old. Um, One female, six male. So just a lot to process when it comes to looking at those who are accused. Absolutely. Those are some really, really young folks. And there were recent bail hearings. What have we learned from that? Yeah, so there were two particular bail hearings, one for five of the accused, one for two of the accused. Mm -hmm. I was in the courtroom um, when five of them went ahead with their bail hearings. And it was a very... um, it was a very interesting scene. Like I've covered a lot of court and crimes over the yeah. years, but um, 
when it involves people of this particular age, it's just things are just a little bit more tense. Um, in the courtroom, the five who appeared, they appeared either through phone or over video, mm. and each had at least one member of their family in the courtroom. None of those people were interacting with each other, and you could feel you could feel things were just a little tense. People were trying to figure out what exactly was going on. Everyone mm. was keeping to themselves. Um, everyone was pretty reserved. None of them uh, were willing to speak with with myself. Right, of course. And um, when when these uh, accused appeared, the two who were over video we couldn't really see much of the expression on their faces. I mean, they're they're wearing masks, so that obviously is, right. is a hindrance. Um, but you could tell that they were young. Yeah, they were very young. Um, you know, we're used to seeing adults in those positions, um, and so it was just very visually different to see people who were so young um, appearing over a video. So they went through the proceedings of uh, the bail hearings for each of these five. Um, and one thing in particular was that a publication ban had been requested mm-hmm. by the Crown um, to not name the the victim in this case. Right. Um, that is something that CBC contested. We had received explicit permission from uh, the mother of the victim that we could name him, that we could show his photo, that he um, would be named in all different platforms mm-hmm. um, that CBC has, so radio, TV, um, and online. And uh, that's something that I brought up with the judge. I felt that it was important um, to bring this up because we had already spoken with uh, the victim's family. Um, They had been very clear that they wanted his name released. Mm -hmm. And the judge in this particular case uh, made the ruling that we could exclude the victim's name from the publication ban. So that is the reason why we are still able to name Karn Sahota. Mm-hmm. And you've been, as you talked about, you've been covering this in court, speaking to the community and the family around Sahota. Uh, what have you been hearing in the last few weeks? I've been hearing that it's been really hard. Yeah. Um, this particular incident, as we found out through the autopsy, you know, was very violent. Um, and the family members who I've spoken to are still processing. I mean, it's it's a lot to take in. Um, I spoke with uh, two cousins of Karin Veer two days after he passed. Um, and those are always very difficult conversations yeah. to have, generally speaking. And what I was struck by was I would define how, how they were during our interview as restrained anger. Mm. They were clearly very upset that he had passed away. You know, they have very fond memories of, um, you know, of, of being cousins and, and playing together and, yeah. and that type of thing. Um, but you could tell there was a lot bubbling underneath the surface. And they were, from what I could tell, just trying to stay as composed as they could, which is why I use the words restrained anger. Mm. You know, I've, over the years, just spoken with a lot of families after after horrible things have happened. Um, but I was just very very struck by how they held themselves, um, by how they were very careful about the words they used um, and how they really wanted justice for their cousin. It's one of those kind of tough things as a journalist. You so often encounter people right after these really bad things happen. Um, And it's always really just uh, fascinating in an awful way to see how people react and respond. Yeah. And everyone reacts so differently. You know, some families never want to talk and I completely understand why that is. But over the years, I've learned that a lot of families 
feel like it's important for them to speak out for someone who's passed away, that um, it can be cathartic for them. It can help them in the grieving process and to each their own. I mean, everyone responds differently. And so, you know, we always make sure that these families are comfortable speaking with us, that they're not feeling forced to speak with us. That's something that they want to do willingly. And so we leave that decision up to them. And we're always very grateful when people are... um, our understanding and and know that we are going to treat these stories with respect. Absolutely. So so as this particular story moves forward, um, you know, what are you watching for? What what comes next? So there is going to be a vigil at the high school, um, and that's uh, a vigil for the community to come together. Um, Karen Beer had a funeral um, over the weekend, and this is um, more vigil for the people of Edmonton to come together. And I think that's something that's really important because, yes, we have a family that is grieving the loss of their 16-year-old, but there are also ripple effects um, from that. And then there are those ripple effects from the seven accused, their families, their communities. So this is something that's not just an isolated incident. This is affecting a lot of people in the city, and it's affecting a lot of people globally as well. So that's something we're going to be keeping an eye on, as well as what happens in court. Um, the fact that there are seven accused this, this could take a while. This is a big file. It's not going to happen overnight. So we're going to be keeping a close eye on that. And the next court appearance for the seven accused is May 13th at 9.30. Julia, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Thank you for having me. When violence happens in a community, the reaction is is kind of like an echo. Mm -hmm. It just keeps going and going. And and this month, two schools are dealing with the effects of violence. McNally, of course, here in Edmonton, but also Pigeon Lake Regional School, where one student stabbed another. So how do you handle violence at a school and the death of a student? Andrew Parker is a teacher at Emmy Lazert in Edmonton and an advocate for students working with youth in his community and beyond. And he joins us now on The Loop to talk about what happens next. Hi, Andrew. Hi, how are you? I'm good, I'm good. So these two incidents have, you know, really got people on high alert, uh, kids and parents, for obvious reasons. Um, What was your reaction and and what did you hear from your students about uh, what happened at McNally? Well, it was something that actually hit the students in terms of um, their access to media before a lot of us adults. And what we're starting to see right now in education specifically um, for the last, I'd say, five to 10 years in the prominence of social media is that that's kind of the way things go, where the students are able to see these images and hear Mm -hmm. these uh, news items or even before their news items hear about the circumstances that are happening to their peers. So my students were very concerned because, I mean, a lot of different schools were going through uh, various challenges during that time, uh, maybe not so much violence, but mm-hmm. um, in relation to student-to-student interactions, there have been some challenges. But um, I definitely know that my students were comfortable talking to me about these situations because we talk about them all the time. Yeah, I mean, you know, I can't imagine what it's like to be a teenager, you know, right now with uh, with technology technology kind of being in your face and, and being a part of your day every day, right? I mean, it's hard enough being a kid as it is, but uh, to kind of add that to the mix, uh, I think it uh, takes it to a whole new level. I mean, I know I've talked to you about your situation uh, growing up, you know, there was times where it wasn't easy, and uh, mm-hmm. but uh, it sounds like you got lucky, you know, you met a teacher who made a big difference uh, in your life and uh, kind of uh, has, uh, you know, helped you to get to where you are now. Yeah, Coach Tom Oniski was my hero. Um Every opportunity I get a chance to share that story, especially with my students or even staff members, 
it's a very important relationship for any young person to have, especially in those delicate years, 15, 16, 17, 18, you're dealing with peer pressure, mm. self-esteem, bullying, um, self-image, self-awareness, puberty, yeah. um, and becoming an adult. And in those very tough stages, you need someone that you can talk to. And I was lucky to have an incredible ally in Tom Olniski, who is of Ukrainian and Polish heritage, who mm-hmm. befriended me and loved me like a child, even though I was a Jamaican Grenadian uh, student. And now I find myself in that role as a teacher here at uh, Emmy Lizard High School, um, you know, being an ally to students who come from various uh, backgrounds, ethnicities, nationalities, orientations. Um, and it's the greatest work that I could ever say. I, I enjoy the work with the students more than anything because they care a lot about their lives and I care a lot about them because I know their parents do as well. Yeah. I think it's fair to say, too, you're known in the city for that connection. And, and I'm glad that you said the word ally, too, because you really are. You're, you're a champion for all of your students and you're known for it. Why do you think that building that connection with kids is so important, especially today? Because, you know, this isn't just a job. Um, this this isn't just a career. Um, it's like a conviction. It's a vocation. It's It's something where I come every day and I'm actually generally concerned about my students, where they're coming from, and we hold those conversations. This year alone, um, as we get towards the, I don't know if it's the end of COVID, but at least the regulations have went down and we're able to be a little bit closer to one another. I spent so much time outside of my classroom, like immediately outside of my classroom, just having one-on-one conversations with my students. How's home life? What's going on here at school? Oh, uh, boyfriend, girlfriend situation, um, partner situation, bullying situations, and we try to work on it. So I try my best to connect them with our council counselors, our student Mm. services, but also outside connections within the community. Um, For some members, whether you're 2SLGBTQ, you're Muslim, you're Black, um, you're Arab, you feel comfortable talking to certain people in those spaces within the school. So what I try to do is find connections for those kids so they're comfortable, they feel like they're trusted, and they have that trusting relationship so that they can get the solution that they want. Yeah. Tell me about just the work that goes into making yourself that kind of approachable person, because teachers can be intimidating. I remember in my high school experience, I definitely had some intimidating teachers. But but what is the work that you do to make it so that the kids can come to you and and ask for that help and be honest about what's going on? Well, first of all, one thing that I try to do as an educator that um, a lot of great educators do as well, like Sarah Amako Ansa. Um, Megan Tipler, Dr. Munasale, Dr. Farah Sharif is we use social media as a tool and we also use it so that we can better understand the students that we're interacting with. I think a big challenge right now for administrators and some teachers is that when we say, oh, well, I don't know this social media platform, so I'm not going to invest my time in it. And sadly, sometimes the challenges come from those same social media websites that we haven't been paying attention to. So what I try to do is just get involved on Twitter, get involved on Instagram and model positive behavior and then demonstrate that to the students and then also leave that platform open so we can communicate outside of school hours. Now, that's a challenge, especially now when you're working four out four classes with barely a lunch and like you know you're doing yeah. sports and you're doing community stuff but i i think it's better because you can alleviate a lot of challenges within the classroom and outside of the classroom if they just have another access point so that's one of the ways that i try to do it and a lot of other educators have done it as well and it's been quite successful um 
you know, as as the dad of a of a kid in grade ten, I mean, I I hear about what's going on in the schools all the time. You know, occasionally I get to go into schools when you know I visit yourself or other teachers, and you kind of get to experience, and it's it's very different. Uh, you know, especially seeing teachers interact with each other. I, I mean, you know, you painted a picture of going out in the hallway and talking mm-hmm. to kids, and I, I've seen you in action, and it is great. It is great. I think we all uh, can can kind of relate to a teacher we had like that, right, yeah. back right. in the day. So, no, that is very, very cool. Um, and, you know, it's very normal, unfortunately, you know, for groups of teens to kind of not get along sometimes with each other and have issues with each other. Can you talk about any kind of uh, instance where you experienced that or you, you know, you kind of found yourself in the middle of that and how you, how you dealt with it or how you helped out? Yeah, maybe? I, um, 20 years ago, almost to the date at my school, we had, um, we had a stabbing incident. Um, and the tough part for me was that I knew both students involved. I went to the junior high with the student who was harmed and the other student, I knew him from the black community here in Edmonton. And, you know, sadly, that was something that actually discouraged a lot of students from attending our school, even though like our school was a great school. Mm. But those two men, young men just had a beef and the beef yeah. like spiraled into something violent. Mm. Now, we were lucky because our uh, guidance counselor actually came in and intervened in that situation, was able to save both of those young men. Um, but the question is, like, do we need more counselors? Do we need more community connections? Do we need support for marginalized communities so that when they're in that building, they feel safe enough to talk to someone before they get involved in a, a conflict, a challenge, a battle, a fight? Um, I personally believe that that's what we do need in education. And I think that was actually um, echoed by the aunt of the student at McNally who said, you know, essentially what we need are some community connections. Um, yeah. Our kids need spaces where they feel trusted. Um, and that goes for other um, challenges such as um, sexual abuse or um, bullying, violence, um, racism, um, Islamophobia, homophobia. All those mm-hmm. challenges need people uh, in those spaces to advocate for them. Um, and is that something we have right now? I'd like, I personally think we, we should have some more. Yeah. So, Yeah. And, and how would you say, uh, you know, social media and the use of video cameras on phones? I mean, it sounds like it's the X factor that has kind of changed the way, you know, bullying happens Absolutely. and how and how these videos can just kind of spiral and, and everybody well, sees it. Yeah, there's these pages where like there's these anonymous confession pages and, and yeah. videotaping teachers in vulnerable positions and students. Um, one of my uh, students actually mentioned that there's a page out there where um, students are taking pictures of people like in the bathroom and like and think yeah. of how horrific that is for a student literally just trying to go to the bathroom all of a sudden you see this camera peeking underneath you in the stall and it's getting crazy to social media before your parents see it before you see it and then you're again in a vulnerable situation because you're asking for principals and teachers to help you but it's probably about 20,000 views Too or 30,000 yeah. views yeah. with 300 comments and yeah. It's, it's a tough situation for any kid to be in. So I'd like to see some of these social media platforms be more responsible and have connections to principals and teachers. And I'd love for our principals and teachers to be a little bit more aware of the circumstances happening with our youth. Yeah. I mean, what do you do to calm down these situations that can happen between groups, whether you're made aware of them on social media or in person or someone lets you know you see it? I mean, what what can you do to be the voice of reason in that scenario? So I've actually had to be that voice of reason, yeah. unfortunately, this year a few times where um, one of my students was being targeted um, in an, anom- an anonymous Instagram page where 
something bad happened, and the very next day she showed up to school, and there were over 100,000 views and 400 comments, and 300 of those comments were racist. So, you know, she came to school, she was upset, she was mad, and we actually had to reach out to the students involved and say, okay, why did was this posted? Did you think about contacting the parents first? Did you think about contacting that person before you released it to a media page? ran by a person that you've never met before in your entire life. Right. And we had to hold those conversations. And then parents got involved and um, administrators got involved. And we, we eventually did get um, the video taken down. But that site is still up and going and it's still causing lots of havoc uh, here in our city, especially. So yeah. uh, at a micro level, we, we were able to handle it as a school. But on a macro level, that's only one of the how many 275 yeah. schools we have or whatever it is in the province. Um, there needs to be a more effective strategy and there needs to be more, I would say, professional development and support from, from all levels. And that includes the district as well as our politicians who are um, working with education in this province. Yeah. How is that student doing now? She's doing great. <laughs> she's kicking butt. She's one of my fave students. And when I can't obviously say her name, but yeah. she knows that we have a very strong relationship. And in that situation, um, you know, she came to school and she's just like, I want to talk to one person and that's Mr. Parker. And mm-hmm. I, I want to say that it's because I'm a decent teacher, but she also said that because I'm a member of a BIPOC community and so is she. Yeah. So she yeah. felt safer. So can we get more of our teachers in those places, counselors, principals? Yes. And I think if we do have those people there, we can do a lot of good work here um, in the city of Edmonton, province of Alberta. Absolutely. Uh, When it does get to the next level, like what we've seen recently, and something violent happens, how do you move forward then? You know, when, when it's traumatic like this, I think it can feel to a lot of young people like the end of the world in a lot of ways. What can you say or do? I feel bad for our students here um, in Edmonton, because usually when we see situations like this, it's our it's our cousins down in the United States of America, particularly mm-hmm. Florida, as it relates to, to, to gun issues, gun legislation, um, safety of the students. But again, um, I would say that our schools have done a very good job in trying to handle these situations. It hasn't been ideal. It's been two years of COVID-19, so mm-hmm. we've been in class, out of class. And for our students, they're trying to figure out how to be, quote-unquote, normal again, how to interact with people again. Because for two years, all they've been doing has been tweeting, texting, commenting, and DMing. And now yeah. you have actually have to talk to someone face-to-face and right. it's, it's uncomfortable, it's difficult. So I think if we just push more initiatives that make us see each other face-to-face, talk to each other face-to-face and understand each other face-to-face, that um, a lot of positive change can happen here uh, in our province and in education specifically. Uh, like Andrew, I know myself, uh, as parents myself and Mrs. D, like, you know, when we're talking to the kids, we say, if, if you wouldn't say it, or, or, you know, say it to a person face-to-face or send something to them uh, or, or show them something face-to-face. You don't say it or send it uh, on mm-hmm. your phone. Like, do you find yourself having those kinds of conversations with kids just kind of off the cuff, you know, when, when you're yeah. in the gym or in the hall? Like, you know, just to kind of kind of keep it in, the, in front of mind for them? Yeah, well, every single Thursday here at our school, we spend at least 10 to 15 minutes putting positive affirmations um, through the platform of Thankful Thursday. And a part of that is just for us to understand each other, Mm -hmm. for them to see like what I'm thankful for. So I do it every single Thursday on my Instagram and on my Twitter. And also for me to check in, like how often do we check in on these kids? They show up to class, they put their head down sometimes, 
they're upset or they're mad that Mr. P have to go to the bathroom. Like giving them just another lane, whether it's social media or in person, is huge. So yeah. I think if we could do things like that collectively, not just individually, like one offs, one offs won't work. Yeah. It's got to be something that has to be done collectively and as a community. Yeah. And I think um, education will just grow as a result of that. And and as a teacher now, how do you navigate the next few weeks? Because there, there will be a trial. There there will be people texting back and forth and, and you know, rumors and things like that. Um, right. You know, what? how do you deal with what comes next? Open dialogue with an empathetic lens. An empathetic lens is everything. We have to take a look at everyone's perspective and understand mm-hmm. where they're coming from and then center the fact that we don't want any lives to be harmed. We don't want violence to be at the forefront of what we're doing in our schools. So how do we do that? We need a proactive approach. You can't be reactive just like, here, we're going to penalize this person when they do something wrong. Let's encourage them to do things that are beneficial for the community, beneficial for their family, beneficial for the classrooms. We can be more proactive in our approaches instead of reactive. Things will get better. Hey, uh, Andrew, listen, I really appreciate your time and your insight about this. And um, it's too bad you weren't a teacher when I was in high school. That would have been. <laughs> I was just thinking that too. That would have been a blast. <laughs> We'd all be hanging out. <laughs> we would be. I've seen you in action, man. I know what it's. I know the vibe. I got the vibe. I catch the vibe. The Loop is a weekly podcast from CBC Edmonton, and our team is Min Dariwal, Leslie Goldstone, Corey Haberstock, and James Evans. Our theme music is Change Your Mind by Edmonton musician John Common. And I'm Claire Bonneman. Thank you so much for listening. Thanks, Claire. Yes, you can get into The Loop every Friday because there's always more to know. And if you have an idea or a story or something you just want to get off your chest and you want us to hear about it, you can get in touch with us at The Loop at cbc.ca or on social media with the hashtag the loop cbc or you can contact me i'm at min dariwal and claire you're at nami nob n-a-m-y n-n-o-b for people who may not know that is her name backwards <laughs> who doesn't know that at this point <laughs> she started that account a while ago so we'll forgive her we'll cut her some slack and of course follow us on cbc listen or wherever you find your podcasts For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.